Would you pray with me for just a moment? Thank you, Father, for the Word of God which has been brought to us already this morning. We have sung the Word. We have prayed the Word. We have thought through what you have to say to the church. And I pray that our time now to finish out our morning would be a delight to you as it accurately reflects your heart from the Word of God. We pray that you would pierce our hearts, Lord, that in the coming days you would give us that gospel courage. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was delighted to hear that what I'm going to talk about today is basically part two of what Dr. Boosness just brought to us. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and I'm just going to read this text from verses 8 through 11 to us. Revelation 2, 8 through 11, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The whole book of Revelation given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church to the Apostle John around 95 AD or so, was to be given first to these seven churches of Asia Minor. And this portion specifically addresses the church in the port city of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey. The Lord has warned the church at Smyrna that they're about to suffer persecution. They're about to be in pain. And while the reference to the imprisonment for 10 days has a, a variety of potential interpretations, the historical fact is that this persecution went on for decade after decade after decade. That's what actually happened. And I think this is a great text for us because the church at Smyrna is very instructive to us now as the church of Jesus Christ in this day. We've witnessed developments in the past 18 months that we didn't think we would see in our lifetime. Coronavirus became the catalyst and the excuse for the church to come under attack with at least what seems to be kind of a warm-up for increasing persecution. We saw churches shut down wholesale. We saw pastors arrested and literally taken from their families. Lawsuits have been flying through court systems. We saw human government, the creation of God, and under his dominion and under his rule, overstep their God-given bounds and attempt to control the church of Jesus Christ. In our state, we were even ordered for some time to stop singing to the Lord. We were told how we could and could not administer the Lord's table. And as we all recall, most devastatingly, False statistics were used to scare churches into submitting orders to close, to stop being the ecclesia, the gathering of the people of God. And it seems that the past 18 months has really served as a wake-up call to the church, and we've learned some things. I want to highlight three things we've learned briefly. 
First, we learn that Satan's schemes against God's people come in some of the sneakiest ways possible. This is evidenced by the countless number of churches that have now shifted their ecclesiology from the biblical mandate to proclaim Christ and the gospel to suddenly now being responsible for the physical health of the community. That's never been the church's mission. The second thing we've learned is that this sovereignly orchestrated global event has also served to strengthen the true church of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for this and we're eager to see the spiritual fruit that will be born in the years to come. And the third thing we've learned is we've, we've learned to correct our previous notions of persecution. Generally, in the church, our concept of persecution, if we even have one, is, is very black and white. And it goes something like this. As soon as the government passes a law banning Christianity, now we're being persecuted. But never in our wildest imaginings did we think that something slightly worse than the flu could be used as an excuse to control the church. For governors, for presidents, to begin defining morality and righteousness as doing what they say, regardless of what the Bible says. And so given that we seem to have been afforded this sneak preview of what is possible regarding the church of Jesus Christ, my question for us as the church universal this morning is, very simply, are we ready to fill great shoes? Are we ready to fill great shoes? Now, I have to admit, that's a weak sermon title, and I'm going to tell you why later, but it was in the program, so I had to go with it. In other words, have we learned what it's going to take should the anti-church and the anti-Christian environment in our nation continue to fester and grow? The great shoes I'm speaking of us filling, of course, concerns the heroic church at Smyrna. They're told in advance that persecution is coming. It was already there to a great degree, but it's going to intensify. And so what we're going to do is take a little time travel back, and we're going to see a people who suffered in much greater ways than we ever have. And in fact, to help us highlight the faithfulness of Smyrna, we're given a great gift in that the person who really exemplified the faithfulness of the church at Smyrna is a man that we would consider a hero of our faith, His name was Polycarpus. History knows him as Polycarp. And this morning, we're going to visit with Polycarp every once in a while as we walk through this text. But the church at Smyrna in general and the life of Polycarp in particular gives us quite an inspiring example to follow as we see Christianity more and more hated, the church more and more hated in the world, the church marginalized and certainly seen by the world as unessential And so just a loose outline for us this morning, I'd like to give us four examples for us to follow from the church at Smyrna and from the life of Polycarp. Four examples. The first example to follow, expect to suffer. Expect to suffer. Dr. Buznitz spoke of the suffering that we should know is coming, but we need to get it right in our faces to simply expect it. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Smyrna. It's a very interesting city. It was an important port city in the Roman Empire for trade and commerce. There was travel. There was culture. It has a very rich and long history. Smyrna is more ancient than Rome and Athens. It's known today as Izmir. It has cultural roots in the Hittites, the Greeks, the Romans, the the Byzantine Empire, Turkish Empire. It was a great place in literary history. The poet Homer was born in Smyrna. 
This is a great place in scientific history. Smyrna and the surrounding area is considered one of the birthplaces of observational science, empirical science. It was a large city, almost as large as Ephesus, at about 200,000 people. And it was famous for Mount Pegasus, which rose 500 feet above the harbor. And it had a famous avenue around this called the Street of God. And it curved around it, and there was a shrine at either end of the Street of God. One shrine was devoted to the goddess Cybele, the other to Zeus, the chief god of the Greek pantheon of gods. And so the message of Christ's lordship in a city which prided itself on their belief in the lordship of Zeus, that didn't go over too well, generally speaking. Now, when this letter was received in Smyrna, young Polycarp was 26 years old. Polycarp was born in Smyrna to Christian parents. They were members of the church in Smyrna. And he was born at a time of tumult for the people of God. He was born right in, at 69 AD when the Jewish-Roman war was already in full swing for several years. And before Polycarp could even walk, Jerusalem was surrounded and placed under siege in AD 70 and would eventually be destroyed by the Roman army. A few years prior, Emperor Nero had already begun ramping up massive persecution against Christians, mostly in the city of Rome itself, but it began to have uh, definite ramifications all over the empire. And so by the time Polycarp was a young man of 26, the church at Smyrna was already suffering. That was already the culture there. Why were they suffering? I want to give you three sources of their suffering, and we'll, we'll revisit these frequently. The first source of their suffering was the overstepping government. The overstepping government, in verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. This almost certainly speaks of being at the hands of the government. Christianity was bad for business, bad for economics in a polytheistic society. You recall from the book of Acts that Paul found himself in the middle of a riot in Ephesus a few decades earlier since Christianity was now upsetting the, the thriving silver idol business. Smyrna was a early major hub for Roman emperor worship in AD 23. During the life of Christ, Smyrna built the first temple in honor of the emperor, Emperor Tiberius at the time. During the reign of Domitian, when Revelation was written, emperor worship was commanded of every citizen with the threat of death for noncompliance. And annually, every Roman citizen had to burn incense on an altar of Caesar And then was issued a certificate as an official Caesar worshiper to be in the good graces of the all-powerful government. And if you didn't have a certificate, you could face imprisonment or death. I didn't say the word vaccine, but I know you're all thinking of it right now, so I may as well just say it out loud. Obviously, this is a problem because for the Christian, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. There's a second source of suffering, the arrogant society. The arrogant society. Let me put you into the sandals of a typical freeborn aristocrat living in Smyrna. The gentleman would have his breakfast served in bed. It was bread soaked in wine, served by a slave. Some of his household slaves would then accompany him to the agora, the the marketplace, To help him prepare for a banquet that evening, he would choose some of the food himself. He would choose the fruits and the vegetables. At the Agora, he would converse with some of the other aristocrats. 
Maybe he would even get his hair cut at a salon because that's where you got all the news. Some things never change. Every once in a while on a chosen day, he would have to attend what they called the assembly. All the freeborn citizens over 30 were expected to attend and they determined what happened to everybody else. In the afternoon, he might take some exercise at a gymnasium. If he was older, he might watch some younger people playing games. And this was also a time to discuss philosophy or poetry or science. The evening banquet all, always included preparing food for more than just the invited guests. Because in Smyrna, the guests also brought their own guests unannounced. And so they had a huge quantity of food. They would eat at low tables, reclined on, on couches of sorts, and they would begin with fish, with meat, with vegetables. And after a time of discussion, they would have sweet desserts and then finally fruit brought in for the second course. The servants would come in and wash the hands of the guests, and they would bring in large vases of a mixture of water and wine with ornate drinking cups to kind of finish off the evening. But then after dinner, there was the entertainment, there was singing, there was a musical recital, maybe a dance recital, playing games or organized storytelling. And at the end of an evening, it went hours and hours and hours, wine was poured on the ground or maybe poured over the statue of a god as a sacrifice. The servants of all the guests would light the torches for the walk home. All this would be repeated the next day. But that was the life of the few. Many of the people of Smyrna were slaves. Some of them were in chains. Others were more trusted in the households. But that life I just described to you was not the life of the church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna was not made up of aristocrats. It was from what we might call the lower middle class. Many of them were Jewish Some were tradesmen or artisans in some craft, and and quite a few of them were slaves. And so Jesus says in verse 9, I know your poverty. The believers in Smyrna were persecuted by both the pagan Greeks and the unsaved Jews in the city, and it had a tremendous economic impact on the Christians. There are quite a few scholars who believe that Christians were even barred from regular business and trade, putting them at a huge disadvantage economically because most wouldn't do business with them. And so in Smyrna, to follow Christ was to willingly enter into a hard life and into hardships brought on by your own neighbors in the city. There's a third source of suffering. There's the overstepping government, the arrogant society. The third source of suffering was the falsely religious The falsely religious. Now, many of the believers in Smyrna were Jewish believers. They were being taunted and abused by, verse 9, those who say they are Jews and they're not. They were being taunted by, they were being persecuted by those who were physical Jews, but not Jews in the truest sense, inwardly of the circumcision of the heart, by regeneration by the Holy Spirit, having placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And the church was slandered by the unsaved Jews and by the pagan polytheists. There were accusations of cannibalism leveled against the church. Why? Because of their observance of the Lord's table. This is the body and the blood of Christ. There were accusations of excesses and sexual immorality since they called their common meal a love feast. There were accusations of being anti-family because coming to faith in Christ did split families just as Jesus said it would. 
There were accusations of being atheists, ironically, since they worshipped without images, without statues, without icons. There were accusations of national disloyalty since the church refused to say Caesar is Lord. And they refused to take an oath of Caesar worship. And if you can believe this, there were accusations of terrorism. Because the church taught from 2 Peter 3, 7 that the world would end with fire. The Christians in Smyrna were suffering from every angle possible. From the overstepping government, from the arrogant society, from the falsely religious. If this sounds familiar to you, this is precisely the sources. These are exactly the sources that the church in our time is already seen as the source of suffering. The overstepping government. Well, now they've gotten the bit between their teeth and all over the world are on a campaign that the governments are calling Build Back Better. Translation, the government is now the standard of righteousness for all things. And as the self-appointed standard of righteousness, they determine whether or not the church is fulfilling their mission and will act accordingly. And if a church conforms, does what, for example, many churches in Nazi Germany did in the 1930s, placing a swastika next to the cross. If in our day, a church falls in line with the government's version of righteousness, then they're sort of safe. But of course, we all know from history that totalitarianism's appetite for control is never satiated, is never filled. They always want more. We cannot say Caesar is Lord over the church. And if we do, we're in danger of being like Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Under great pressure from the Queen Mary of England in 1556, he finally signed a statement denying the biblical gospel. But Queen Mary said, I'm going to burn you anyway. And so Cranmer gave an impassioned sermon and he repented of his sin and he purposefully put his hand that signed the statement into the fire first. Cranmer died a martyr, but one with regrets because he capitulated to the government over matters of faith. What about the arrogant society? All you have to do is read the news to see that the lost have begun to perceive themselves as the new standard of righteousness at a level, I can't speak for you, but I've never seen it in my lifetime. Dividing people according to whether or not you fall in line with their humanistic, godless versions of right and wrong. The truth has always been the same. The truth is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that all have need of a savior and that the righteousness of God is the standard. There is no human righteousness The Bible says that no one seeks after God. There is no one righteous. How could we who are sinful decide what is righteous? We can't do that. The only solution to having fallen short of the righteousness of God is to have the righteousness of Christ applied to us by faith. God and God alone determines the standard of righteousness. And listen, the church and the church alone is the messenger of that standard. And what about the falsely religious? Let's cut to the chase. The local church that takes its cues from the world has ceased to function as the church. And that's always been the case. To the church at Sardis in Revelation 3, Jesus told them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Meaning the world thinks you're a pretty neat church. 
Not because they're being a a true blessing to their community, not because they're good law-abiding citizens, not because their lives are being changed by means of the proclaimed gospel. No, 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 no. They have a reputation of being alive because they're people-pleasers and they make their culture happy. Yes, there are a few truly saved people in that church. Revelation 3, 4 tells us that, but not very many. I'll tell you this. The time is coming and is already here when individual local churches will need to decide where they stand. Do we stand with Christ or do we take the bait of falsely religious people trying to shove a new standard of righteousness down our throats? Now, if the goal of a local church is to avoid suffering, then by all means, capitulate, surrender to the overstepping government, to the arrogant society, to the falsely religious But if a church's goal is to remain faithful, then we take comfort from Jesus' words to Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. The first example we must follow is expect to suffer. The second example to follow, determine to persevere. Determine to persevere. You notice how Jesus introduced himself in this letter in verse 8 and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is reminding himself, reminding the church of, of the qualities that he has. He is deity and he is humanity. He is deity, the first and the last. This speaks to his eternal nature, his sovereign care, his self-existent nature. That their pain, their suffering, their persecution was not on behalf of a God of stone, but on behalf of the one true and living God. But he also reminds them of his humanity. He is the one who died and came to life. How comforting this would be to those believers that he will tell, be faithful unto death. Some of them will be thrown into prison. Ten days you will have persecution. You'll have tribulation, rather. Now, there's a variety of views of these ten days. I'm not going to take a lot of time to walk through that here. But an important detail here is that the purpose is that you may be tested. It could be that this, whatever the ten days is, is intense torture and testing to get them to deny Christ. And and this imprisonment is that you may be tested, that, that the genuineness of your faith in Christ may be proven as they stand firm. But whether it's a literal 10-day imprisonment or, or something else, it's really a moot point. In either case, this is not a promise that that will somehow end persecution. It's really just the beginning. In fact, some of them would be killed for their faith. And so how would they persevere? Well, Jesus gave them two strategies for perseverance. First strategy, do not fear, and the second one, be faithful. His first strategy in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. As Dr. Busnitz said, it's not a matter of, of generating some sort of inner power. It's simply choosing to trust God. What a comfort this is. When God gives a command to them, do not fear, what does that assume? It assumes that they can do that. It assumes that they'll be given the power to not be afraid. And by that example, it assumes we can obey that command. By simply asking the Lord for strength to not be afraid, we walk in fearlessness. And the second strategy, he says, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Stay true to the Lord. Just endure. Just keep going. 
get to the point where you must be dependent on the Lord and the Lord alone. Now, just to be clear, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints says that those saved by grace through faith will continue in the faith. John 10, Jesus said he wouldn't lose one of us. and We take comfort in that. But at the same time, we're called to persevere. We're called to stand firm. Colossians 1.23, one of our favorite verses at this conference, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Polycarp was just 26 when his church received this letter, and he would eventually become the lead pastor or bishop, as they were once called, of the suffering church in Smyrna. What sort of pastor and elder was Polycarp? Well, to say it simply, he was a churchman through and through. He loved the church, and he had the heart of a shepherd. Well, let's back up just a little to understand this. Maybe the most famous fact about Polycarp is that he was a student of the Apostle John, the writer of Revelation. He learned John's theology well. He, he taught and he wrote. He expounded on John's thoughts. Now, for example, John wrote in 2 John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one as the deceiver and the Antichrist. Polycarp, teaching on this, added this formula, whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. He was very black and white about these things, just like John. He developed into a great defender of the faith. For example, Marcion, the heretic theologian who rejected the entire Old Testament, rejected many letters of the New Testament, taught a low view of God as God being inconsistent and unreliable. Polycarp confronted him, and he kindly called him the firstborn of Satan. Very black and white. Again, he was, he was an adamant defender of the Bible, an adamant defender of the biblical gospel for the sake of the church. Now, interestingly, we get some insight into Polycarp's earlier ministry through the eyes of Ignatius of Antioch. He was a first century churchman and a theologian. Ignatius was 34 years older than Polycarp and at times wrote letters to Polycarp and to the church at Smyrna. One letter in particular gives us some insights into Polycarp. In this letter, Ignatius expressed his delight at having recently been able to visit Polycarp in Smyrna. Ignatius praised Polycarp for his convictions concerning the gospel and the word of God, his loyalty to Christ, his loyalty to Christ's church. But Ignatius also gave some advice and even kind of a, some friendly rebukes as well. For example, Polycarp tried to love the whole church, but he tended to love the more obedient followers of Christ more than he should, probably where every pastor fails to some extent. Ignatius also felt that Polycarp had a bit of a lazy streak as a younger man, evidenced by perhaps not meeting with the church quite often enough, and so he urged him to be more diligent. But Ignatius saw the giftedness of Polycarp and how Polycarp so looked up to Ignatius and so Ignatius called Polycarp a great athlete for the faith. In fact, Polycarp was so deeply influenced by Ignatius that soon after Ignatius was martyred, Polycarp was about 40 years old at the time, Polycarp gathered the seven or eight letters that Ignatius had written to the churches in Asia and he memorized all of them, taking to heart all the godly and pastoral wisdom from Ignatius. And so, so to speak, ignited by Ignatius, 
And now feeling, in a sense, that he was standing alone without one of his spiritual fathers to lean on, Polycarp developed a determination, a drive, a perseverance for the sake of the church. And over the next 46 years of his ministry, his determination to persevere, even in a suffering church, would become legendary. And what was one of the hallmarks of the determination of Polycarp to persevere? How did he do this? Well, that brings us to our third example to follow the church at Smyrna. The first example to follow, expect to suffer. The second example to follow, determine to persevere. And the third example, as Polycarp would exemplify, be the church. Be the church. I want to point out some assumptions that the Lord Jesus Christ is making about his faithful church in Smyrna. Some assumptions. Assumption number one, they will be tested as a church. They will be tested as a church, not just individual Christians scattered and in hiding. He says, some of you are going to prison. And listen, verse 10, that you, plural, the church as a group may be tested. Not just a bunch of individuals. This was not just a series of individual tests that those who persevere are truly saved. This was a test of the church as a unit. Now, I want you to notice something Jesus doesn't say, come on, guys, let's all pull together. Let's be unified here. No, he already said, I know who the true church is. The true church are the ones who stay the course. You're already unified as a church group. He makes a second assumption in his address to the church at Smyrna. They will suffer as a church. He assumes this. He tells them this. Verse 10, for 10 days, you Plural, you, the church as a whole, as a unit, as a group, will have tribulation. And this suffering will, of course, have a purging and a purifying effect. Because the third assumption that he writes with is that the true church will be rewarded together. The true church will be rewarded together. In verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you, this time it's singular, because they're a joined unit. They are now purged. They are now purified. You will receive the crown of life. I want you to notice the options that Jesus does not give them. He doesn't say, well, you'd better lay low until the heat passes by. I'd suggest online church for five years until things kind of cool off. Well, you'd better pay attention to what the government wants since you do have to obey the government at all costs, even if they command you to sin. Well, you know that society can make some really good points. You should customize your your mission to fit what society wants it to be. Well, you know that the self-righteous, unsaved religious are really just trying to make the planet a better place. So try to work with them. Try to get along. No, 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 no. Jesus completely ignores the government. He ignores society. He ignores the falsely religious except to condemn them. Why? Because none of those entities have a voice in what the church does. I have a concern that many others have expressed as well. In American evangelicalism, sometimes, and I'm speaking broadly here, nobody here, of course, sometimes we have a problem with commitment. If the pastor preaches too long, if a leader makes me mad, if I don't get my way on some mundane detail of the church, 
or if I feel I need a sophisticated form of entertainment on Sunday morning, or, or if I don't like being convicted by the preached word, I just want to be made to feel good, or if I disagree with a judgment call by my leadership, on and on and on and on. American evangelicalism struggles with faithfulness in the face of minor issues. This is concerning because Christ commands that we be faithful unto death. Can we do that? When the issue is not how long the pastor preaches, but the regulations imposed by the government, when the issue is not whether I get my way on something or not, but on the tremendous pressure that the godless, arrogant society puts on us to succumb to horrific ideologies, and when the issue is not whether I feel entertained, but on the pressure the false religious bring to conform to social and ideological ideas that are completely unbiblical. Can we do that? Can we be faithful unto death when right now, sometimes we have trouble being faithful for much smaller reasons? Christ expects the church to be the church at all costs. At all costs, the church is to proclaim Christ through the preaching of the Bible, meaning we're committed to the preached word of God at all costs. The church is to gather together at all costs. The ecclesia, the church, literally the gathering, the ungathered church is an oxymoron. The ungathered gathering is like deafening silence. It's like deceptively honest or definite maybe or crash landing. They're two concepts that cannot exist together. The church is to evangelize the lost with the biblical gospel and all the more now. When the church tries to please the overstepping government and the arrogant society and the falsely religious, now we've lost what makes us different. What makes us different is that Christ and Christ alone is the answer to sin and to the ills of a dying world. But you don't understand. I might die of coronavirus. Yeah, you might. You're going to die of something. You need Christ. The church is to keep the ordinances And you can't do this online. Christ commanded that we publicly baptize new believers as a testimony of genuine faith and that we publicly remember his substitutionary death through the Lord's table. This is not optional. These are not accessories. These are means of grace necessary for edification and more importantly, necessary for obedience to our Lord, the only head of the church. And the church is to Disciple the eager and warn the wayward. No outside influence gets to tell the church how to be the church. We impart the word of God to those who are eager. And we warn those not eager to learn and to grow in Christ's likeness. What is the church to do? At all costs. Proclaim Christ through the preaching of the Bible. Gather together at all costs. Evangelize the lost with the biblical gospel. Keep the ordinances. Disciple the eager and warn the wayward. Listen, Polycarp. He believed with all of his heart that the church must be the church at all costs. Polycarp wasn't known so much as a great theologian, although he was a great theologian, but he was much more known as a shepherd, teaching and preaching to the church the word of God. In fact, the great church father Irenaeus called Polycarp, quote, a blessed and apostolic presbyter or elder. Polycarp didn't want to be a pioneer in theology. He wanted to be a preserver of theology. In other words, Polycarp loved the truth, and he loved the church with the truth. Certainly, Polycarp would have resonated with John's 
declaration in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in what? The truth. It was well known that if unorthodox teaching was mentioned in Polycarp's presence, he would plug his ears. He didn't even want to hear it. If somebody says, well, I'm not certain about the deity of Christ, old Polycarp is all, la, 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 I'm not going to hear that. What an example of clinging to the truth of Christ and to the gospel. Polycarp's battle cry on behalf of the beloved church was basically, if the apostles didn't write it, then you don't believe it. If you were to characterize the ministry of Polycarp, he wasn't original. In fact, he kind of disdained originality. He'd rather just stick to the scriptures. He wasn't even impressive from a worldly standpoint. One scholar points out that while Ignatius commonly used long, compound Greek words to describe God, unlike Ignatius in the writings of Polycarp, he almost never used complex words. He was an everyday shepherd for the everyday church. The same scholar who noted the simplicity of Polycarp's writings concluded this about the ministry of Polycarp. Quote, Polycarp's life, like his thought, was generally unexciting. But genius was rare at any time, and in his period, the church needed stability more than brilliance. Did you catch that? I resonate with that because there is nothing exciting about me whatsoever at all. Polycarp's strength wasn't genius of thought. It wasn't his original theological notions. His strength was simply that he insisted that the church be the church, that stability reign in the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, in his famous letter to Polycarp, Ignatius gave Polycarp a charge, a command to guide the church with stability and with faithfulness. Ignatius urged Polycarp by writing, quote, The ship of the church is tossed to and fro on the ocean of the world. It is a critical moment, a tempestuous season. You must be both its helmsman and its haven, must guide its course and afford it a shelter. So will it arrive at God, its destined goal. Apparently, Polycarp didn't believe in retirement because when he was 85 years old, he was in Rome And there were two major theological groups made up of of the unsaved that were causing confusion in the church. There were the Valentinians and the Marcionites. The the Valentinians were denying the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. And, And the Marcionites were teaching that the God of the New Testament is not the same as the God of the Old Testament. And that Jesus is the son of the God of the New Testament, but not the son of the God of the Old Testament. Valentinians and the Marcionites were a powerful and dangerous influence in the church. And yet at the age of 85, Polycarp went to Rome and he preached the gospel to many of those caught up in these heresies. He reasoned with them from the only source of truth, and that is the scriptures. And as a result, many, many Valentinians and Marcionites repented and were saved by faith in the true, living, resurrected Savior the son of the one God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Even at 85, Polycarp was determined that the church be the church. But Jesus didn't just tell the church at Smyrna to toughen up and endure for no reason. He gave them ample reason. First example to follow, expect to suffer. Second example to follow, determine to persevere. The third example to follow, be the church. And the fourth example to follow, look to heaven. 
Look to heaven. Second part of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Why could they endure? You will not be hurt by the second death. That is the the conscious torment of the lost in eternal hell. The first death is not ultimate either. Death for the Christian is swallowed up in victory through Christ, right? This is a very simple principle for the church. Listen carefully. If death itself holds no fear, then any level of suffering less than death holds less than zero fear. I don't know how that works mathematically, but it gives me a lot of comfort. Jesus promises that the faithful, those who are truly saved and and endure to the end, will receive, he calls, the crown of life. Now, this is important. Grammatically, those are synonyms. The crown which is life. It's not some sort of special reward. It's the ultimate reward, eternal life in God through Christ. How do you look to heaven? And why is that important? I've sort of been obsessed with the the topic of heaven since I was a little boy because it seems it was all my dad talked about. I love the topic of heaven. and, And we often think about how do we look to heaven? Well, Peter tells us in one sentence, in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to set your hope fully? Let's make this mathematical. If everything is in hope is set on heaven, then nothing of your hope is set on anything else. And why is this important for us as the church? Listen carefully. Your willingness to suffer and sacrifice for Christ is directly proportionate to how much you fix your mind on heaven. The church at Smyrna, from a worldly standpoint, was poor. They were suffering from the onslaught of the overstepping government, the arrogant society, the the falsely religious. But Jesus said in verse 9, but you are rich. The coffers of heaven are overflowing with the coming reward for the church at Smyrna. But the very same set of letters. Look what Jesus says to the compromising lukewarm church of Laodicea. Revelation 3.17. Jesus says to Laodicea, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Why is the church at Laodicea rich and prospering from a worldly standpoint when it seems like Christians are being persecuted, when there's an anti-Christian government, when there's an arrogant society, when there's the falsely religious? Why are they okay? Because they're not taking any stand for Christ and they're fitting right in. What a contrast from the mouth of our Savior To the rich and non-suffering church of Laodicea, he says, look to your souls, you are poor. But to the poor and suffering church of Smyrna, he says, look to heaven, you are rich. When Polycarp was 86 years old, a year after battling the heretical influence of the Valentinians and the Marcionites in Rome, back in Smyrna, the proconsul or, or governor Stadius Quadratus, he was hosting a great festival at the local arena. 
And as part of the entertainment for the decidedly anti-Christian crowd, Quadratus decided to have Christians brought to be put to death to entertain the masses. And at the top of the list was the leading pastor of the church at Smyrna, Polycarp. Quadratus sent mounted law enforcement officers to Polycarp's home, but Polycarp had gotten word that they were coming, and he decided to at least make some effort to evade capture. And so he went to the countryside farmhouse of a friend. Well, the officers arrived at his home and and eventually tortured servants in the household until one of them told them where Polycarp was hiding, where he was staying. The mounted police caught up with him at the farmhouse late that night, and having been caught, surprisingly, one historian writes this, Polycarp, quote, immediately ordered that a table be set for them to eat and drink as much as they wished. He was a gracious and generous host, even to his captors. In fact, witnesses say that some of the law enforcement regretted that they had come after such a godly old man. He did, however, refuse to go with them until he had a time of extended prayer to prepare for the ordeal ahead of him. He was taken, and then he was publicly interrogated in order to get him to recant his faith in Christ so that Quadratus could, could publicly tell the crowd what a, what a coward Polycarp was. Didn't work out so well. During his initial interrogation by two officials named Herod and Nicetes, he modeled self-control, he modeled consistency to stay true to the faith while his interrogators embarrassed themselves publicly by failing to persuade Polycarp to recant his faith. The proconsul Quadratus, according to an eyewitness account, I didn't write this, quote, was behaving in a womanly fashion by threatening, pleading, and insisting while Polycarp, continuing to display self-control and philosophical detachment, effectively determined the outcome. Indeed, it is he who delivered what is in effect the verdict when he boldly declared, I am a Christian. Quadratus was pleading with him, even said, look, just renounce Christ and I'll set you free. And Polycarp gave his famous final reply. He said, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I speak evil of my king who saved me? About 10 other Christians had been brought to the arena and they were torn to pieces by lions But then the crowd began chanting, Polycarp, Polycarp, Polycarp. And instead of the lions, Polycarp would be burned to death. When the time for his execution came, Polycarp took his outer clothing off with quiet dignity. And ever the shepherd, he even corrected the wrong way that the executioners were making the fire and told them the right way to do it. He authoritatively then told them that They're not allowed to light the fire until he finished praying, and they obeyed him. Tradition tells us that the fire didn't kill Polycarp, and so he was stabbed. But in all of this, Polycarp demonstrated that God was truly in charge. Polycarp, by the power of God, he was in control of all the proceedings all the way through. When the arresting officers came, he insisted they couldn't arrest him until they had a meal and until he had prayed. And during his mock trial, he effectively controlled the conversation, even to the point of getting the governor, Quadratus, to plead with him like a little girl. And even his executioners were saying, yes, sir, I'll build the fire the way you said to. 
One historian writes that he made the great officials of Rome, quote, all bend to the will of a determined 86-year-old bishop who himself is merely an obedient instrument of the divine will of the true ruler. A number of years later, the church in a town in Asia Minor called Philomelium wrote the church in Smyrna, and they wanted the details of Polycarp's death. They wanted to know what had happened. The church at Smyrna wrote back in what came to be known as the martyrdom of Polycarp. And in the martyrdom of Polycarp, not only did they give the details of Polycarp's arrest and execution, they inserted some of the spiritual lessons that the church had learned through this event. I'll just highlight two of them briefly. First, they wrote that Polycarp's death was, quote, according to the gospel. What did they mean by this? They meant that his death was divinely orchestrated by God under his sovereignty. It was accompanied by a concern that the gospel be exemplified. And his death proved endurance in the midst of suffering. And the second lesson I'll highlight that the church of Smyrna learned. Again, Polycarp demonstrated that the Roman government was not actually in charge. That they were the subordinates of the, to the will of the true king, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe. Listen to the conclusion of this letter from the faithful church at Smyrna. They wrote that Polycarp was, and I'm going to give you a little precursor here. They're about to talk about the timing, the date. And it sounds like they're really elevating everybody who's on the throne and, and ruling at the time. But listen to the ending. Polycarp was, quote, arrested by Herod. When Philip of Tralles was high priest during the proconsulship of Stadius Quadratus. But while Jesus Christ was reigning as king forever, to him be glory, honor, and majesty in the eternal throne from generation to generation. Amen. Who was really in charge? The title of this message is, Are We Ready to Fill Great Shoes? I couldn't change it because it was in the program. That's a weak sermon title. Here's a better one. Are you ready to fill great shoes? Because this will boil down to individual perseverance and faithfulness. That when the overstepping government condemns the church, and when the arrogant society condemns the church, and when the falsely religious condemns the true regenerate church, Are you ready to fill great shoes? Because you must, at all costs, proclaim Christ through preaching the Bible. At all costs, gather together and be the ecclesia. At all costs, evangelize the lost with the biblical gospel. At all costs, keep the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper as the gathered church. And at all costs, disciple the eager and warn the wayward. In other words, you keep doing what Christ, the head of the church, commands at all costs. And you know what you will do? You will fill great shoes. Amen? Amen? Let's do that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. What a gift to see the church at Smyrna, to have, as it were, an older brother church, an older sister church that has gone before, that has been faithful, that has presented us an example. We thank you for the example of Polycarp, how he must be rejoicing with you these past couple of thousand years now. While we are eager to join all of them, Lord, while we are eager to look to heaven, in the meantime, may we have the strength of Christ to fill the great shoes of those great saints who have gone before. 
We pray for the sake of Christ and for his church. Amen.